Welcome fellow plebs, my name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. All right, hello everybody. Thank you for joining me again. Real quick, I'm sorry about the wait here between episodes. I feel terrible because there was such a gap, but I had to have shoulder surgery recently and it laid me up pretty good. And I'll give a little more detail at the end of the episode for anyone interested. Um, That said, I feel pretty good, but up until right now, it has really hindered my ability to do, you know, what needs to be done for new episodes to roll out. So I hope everyone can understand and still stick with me as we roll along towards the holidays. Okay, so today we are going to talk about company towns. And this was a subject I wanted to hit on for a while now, but a recent news story has really annoyed the hell out of me, so I decided to move this discussion up a bit. This episode shouldn't be too long, I don't think. I'm not going to go super deep into the history here. I just want to make sure that we all understand what this article was suggesting and the ramifications that would result. The article itself was published through Bloomberg as an opinion piece. And to tell you the truth here, it was probably the single dumbest article or opinion that I have read this year outside of, you know, some of the various COVID related articles. The article is titled, Amazon's new factory towns will lift the working class. Now, whoever wrote this headline used the term factory town, but what they're really talking about here are more properly known as company towns. The subheadline is this plentiful new jobs at higher wages in places with cheaper housing sounds like a solution to inequality. Both of these sentences are pure idiocy. The author of this piece is named Connor Sen, and he is, of course, an investment banker scumbag. It's sort of striking that this opinion was even put in the economic section of the website. It should have been placed in the funny pages, if anywhere at all. That headline, that company towns will lift the working class, is absurd. It is ahistorical bullshit, to be frank with you. The author actually graduated college with two degrees, one of them being an economics degree. It makes me sad that he also didn't take some time to learn a little history to go with it. And here's a little funny thing I found, though. When I googled Mr. Sen, because frankly, I hadn't heard of him before a couple days ago, and I don't tell you that to belittle Mr. Sen, just as a reason that I found this. But Connor Sen attended Harvey Mudd College, which I had also never heard of. So I googled it, and it's a small college, but an apparently very good one, as their graduates have one of the best salary averages in the country. But then I wondered about the history of Harvey Mudd College, and discovered it was founded by one Harvey Seely Mudd. Mr. Harvey Seely Mudd was a founder, investor, and president of Cypress Mines Corporation, which was based in Los Angeles, but mined on the island of Cyprus. Now, I just went through that whole rigmarole of history just to point something out. Cypress Mines Corporation began mining in, and I'll do my best to pronounce this name, Scoriotissa on Cyprus. And it was here that Cypress Mines built a what? 
take a wild guess. Yep, they built a goddamn company town. A company town where the corporation ruled paternalistically over its workers. So hey, maybe Connor Sen did know his history, and maybe he just doesn't care. So what is a company town exactly? For anyone who doesn't already know, they might have a view that a company town is just a town with a big factory in it or something similar. And this can, you know, to a certain degree be an accurate description, but it isn't quite right. A company town is wholly owned by the company. The real estate, the homes, the stores, everything. Even the utilities in many cases. Now you could also say it could be a town which relies on a single company basically for its entire existence. Now, Sen wasn't exactly calling for precisely this, but we need to be careful here. As he states in the very beginning of this article, he is looking to privatize what is currently communal or social, and this privatization is the end goal here, whether it is stated plainly or not. Quote, The campaign against economic inequality has put a bullseye on cities. Local governments are encouraged to raise the minimum wage, change their zoning laws, and build more housing, particularly in affluent communities that are squeezing out the lower class. But what if you shifted that focus to a different kind of community? Consider these burgeoning new places strung along the interstate and other highways leading away from the urban cores populated by warehouses and fulfillment centers that are being built to serve the needs of e-commerce customers. Let's call them factory towns, end quote. He says local governments are being encouraged to raise minimum wages, change zoning laws, and build more housing and are squeezing out the lower class. And his solution is twofold. First, to push for privatization. That's what he meant when he wrote about shifting the focus to a different kind of community to be built around mega warehouses away from town. The second move is to take the so-called lower class, which he is pretending to advocate for, and further ghettoize them away from the affluent city centers and traditional suburbs. And this is what company towns do and always have done. They ghettoize workers and further indebt them and enslave them to their employers. There is already a crisis of employer power in this country as it currently stands. What sort of power do you think workers will have when their employers are the landlord of their home or their apartments? What power does any worker have if their boss can evict them if they complain about wages or working conditions? They have none. Absolutely none. And this has played out over and over again throughout our history, which we will get to shortly. But back to the article. It says, in regards to inequality, quote, They're not much in the spotlight yet, but making these modern-day company towns more livable for the working class might be a better approach to solving inequality with a higher likelihood of success than continuing to fight against entrenched interests in coastal cities and high-cost parts of metro areas, end quote. And this is an absolute absurdity. 
It is also a promise that every company town of the last couple centuries has promised, and none of them have ever fulfilled. In fact, they have always gone in the other direction, the complete opposite direction. They have to. It's the nature of this beast. Now, the next part I'm not going to read in full, but he basically says that modern warehousing facilities are being built outside of city centers, and in fact, they are being built on the outskirts of even the suburbs. They kind of sort of need to be built there to meet demand. Plus, the real estate is relatively cheap and plentiful for these massive buildings and parking lots. He also says that these places have jobs in them, which, you know, it seems pretty obvious on its face. But we need to sit back and really think about whether we want these jobs to exist or not. Would we rather have a thousand jobs working at Amazon with all of the money they generate immediately flowing into Amazon's coffers and out of the local area? Or do we want these jobs at the local mom and pop shops that these behemoths are destroying? Not the point of the story, not directly at least, but worth thinking about. Quote, It starts with making the jobs as high-paying and safe as possible, whether that can be done by running labor markets hot or perhaps with unionization or the threat of it, end quote. Bullshit. Amazon has been battling unions for years. They work to keep their pay extremely low and put nearly zero effort into making it safe at all, let alone as safe as possible. I actually saw a worker pass out once in an Amazon warehouse, and they simply put orange cones around the prone body and everybody kept working. So, yeah, this is nonsense. Putting Amazon workers in these neo-company towns would only improve Amazon's ability to defeat unions in the future, and Sen knows this. Just two more article quotes here to go. First, quote, People can live close to work with shorter commutes, plus the possibility of employer-provided shuttle buses when their jobs are in a cheaper, less crowded part of a metro area, end quote. Okay, first off, just run away whenever Amazon or any other company is trying to make you more dependent on them with things like worker-provided busing. They're just trying to infantilize you and paternalize their relationship with you and the working class. Do not let them do this. This is something that will come up in the second half of this podcast a lot, so keep it in mind. Oh, and I almost forgot. What happens when Amazon or Walmart decides that the free buses that they lured you in with are suddenly too expensive to run, and they start charging these workers for rides? Then what? Maybe they start taking a couple of quarters off of your hourly wages and giving you bus tokens that are only good on Walmart buses. Now you're getting paid with scrip. Okay, last one, and this is a big one, not in the word count, but really in what it contains. Quote, If there's a push to increase density by building affordable apartments or townhomes for workers, there's less likely to be a wealthy homeowners mobilizing to stop it since those sorts of homeowners probably will live closer to the city core. As wages rise and more jobs are created at warehouses and distribution hubs, you'll get a secondary increase in economic activity as amenities like retail and dining are built close by to appeal to the workforce. End quote. First off, 
don't just give up this fight to the NIMBY class of wealthy landowners. Screw those people. I don't give a damn what they want. Build affordable homes and apartments there, where the good schools are. But even more importantly is this. These people are, again, trying to ghettoize an entire class of working poor people under corporate rule. This land, these buildings, and the infrastructure will be owned by big business, or a group of businesses. Even if this isn't like an unincorporated company town at the turn of the century where the company literally owned everything, the corporation in this new concept would own enough. Even if there was some sort of elected government, a mayor and city council perhaps, Amazon would own it, even if indirectly. Amazon and Walmart would employ the vast majority of the people in this locale, and they'd own the Amazon Cafe and the Walmart Diner, and they'd pay benefits and company gift cards, redeemable only at their own company, which is basically Scrip, which we will talk about soon. They already do this, actually. My company does this with our safety benefits, in fact. And if a company or a couple of companies are the entire economic lifeblood of a town, then what say do you think a worker might have if he were to lodge a complaint? Who would the police listen to when something happened? How could Amazon leverage an employee when Amazon is their landlord? This entire idea is as stupid as it is cruel, and Connor Sen is just a disreputable asshole for even suggesting it. Now I just want to take a few minutes to tell you about historical company towns, what they were, why they were, how they operated, and what lessons we can take from them. And I want to do this so that you understand a little bit more about why this concept is so very, very bad. There will be some history here, but I'm not going to go too deep on that. I just want everyone to really key in on the reality of life in a town under company rule. So again, what is a company town? There are the two main definitions. One is when a town is literally owned by a company. They own the land, the housing, the stores, the churches, and so on, even the utilities. Another definition we can use is a town that is wholly reliant on a single company or perhaps even a couple of companies for its very existence. So the company may not literally own everything in town, but if the company ever left, the economy would collapse, which allows these companies to effectively exert monopsony and monopoly power and hold entire towns hostage. So let's talk about that first company town, the version where the company like really literally owns everything in town. Historically in this country, these towns have sprung up around remote work sites, places like mines in particular coal mining, sawmills, railway construction, and logging. But they were often in and around cities as well, much like Mr. Sen talked about in his article. Let's talk about one of the largest and most famous of company towns and one which is a little closer to what we really think about as modern people as being an actual town in form and function. I guess I'm just saying that this story is a little bit more accessible than faraway mining towns that we don't quite have the ability to truly picture in our heads. This model company town was run by George Pullman and his Pullman Palace Car Company, which was a manufacturer of train cars. The town was, unsurprisingly, named Pullman. So, welcome to Pullman, Illinois, which was located on the south end of Chicago 
and actually remains as a, um, what do they call it, a, a recognized locality in that city to this very day. So George Pullman bought a bunch of land, something like six square miles of it, and built a town there. It was entirely privately funded and entirely owned by Pullman. George Pullman would have told you that his reasons for creating the town was to create a sort of worker's utopia. He wanted to provide a safe place which was nearby to the workplace and provide a safe and comfortable and affordable living situation for his workers. This, of course, would have been set against a vision of the workers as slovenly, poorly housed, lazy, just financially poor and suffering. But Pullman didn't actually care about the financial or social or physical health of his workers. He just wanted control. And control is really the biggest single point that we will be talking about from here on out. Now, company towns would roll out true statements or statements which were close to true. They'd point out that houses and apartments in their towns were sometimes larger than that family could afford outside of it. And they might point out electricity in the homes, which they otherwise may not have had access to, and, you know, maybe some few extra creature comforts. And to be fair, this could sometimes be true, though it isn't very common. Most of these families lived in the same quiet desperation they lived in outside of the work town, only now they had less freedom. George Pullman was extremely paternalistic in how he ran his town. He and he alone decided what employees needed, both to sustain them and to shape the very culture of the town, right down to the hiring of the church pastors. He decided that there would be no alcohol in his town, except in the one hotel which he owned and controlled, and which the workers couldn't afford to drink in anyways, and which Pullman staffed with informants so he could spy on his workers. George Pullman decided that there would be a curfew. George Pullman hired the spies to let him know if anyone smuggled in some gin, or if someone was out past curfew, or even which families were not attending church often enough. George Pullman was the man who hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, which was really just a service to provide armed thugs to the rich to enforce the curfew and the prohibition of alcohol in his town. And these so-called detectives earned their reputation as ultra-violent thugs by beating anyone who broke a rule or even looked at them wrong. And yes, there were deaths as well. All of this, the rules, the strict moral codes, the violent quote-unquote law, which was administered Judge Dredd style by Baldwin Feltz agents, it was done with a purpose. Control. And when you then add in that workers literally couldn't own a house in Pullman, they had to rent them, and they were forced to shop at Pullman-owned stores, which were stocked by Pullman, and which had extremely high prices, and they were forced to listen to Pullman-owned preachers in Pullman-owned churches. Oh, and when Pullman hired men to work, a preference was given to those who lived in Pullman, which forced desperate workers to make the move to Pullman town to get the Pullman job, which put them under Pullman's sway. And when we add in that being fired by the Pullman company meant being immediately kicked out of your Pullman house in Pullman town, I think we can start to see the theme emerging here. George Pullman's goal was, yes, control, but it went even further than that. He was trying to create, almost literally, 
feudal bonds to his workers in his company and, by proxy, himself. This is what a Pullman worker had to say about being a Pullman man. Quote, We are born in a Pullman house, fed from a Pullman shop, taught in the Pullman schools, and when we die, we shall go to the Pullman hell. End quote. George Pullman fed the world a line of bullshit about how he was saving his employees from themselves. And we see the paternalism here again as well, right? But like I said, that was bullshit. What he was trying to do, and successfully did while the town lasted, was to prevent his workers from being free to make any decision at all or from relying on anyone else for anything, including food, material, and spiritual needs. He was recreating a serfdom. Pullman, the town, from its founding as a land purchase and right up until the Great Pullman Strike that eventually forced George Pullman to sell the town, it was designed for and acted as a model for complete control and complete exploitation. So now, let's move to mining towns, an industry which was notorious for company towns in the late 1800s and early to mid-1900s, with their heyday really probably around, I don't know, the 19-teens and 20s. They were created for the same purpose as Pullman and every other company town, control and to feudalize workers. But there are a few ways that the coal towns were different or even took what happened in Pullman and made it even more extreme. And in at least a couple of cases, they managed to, you know, bring it to a deeply sick and deeply criminal and deeply brutal level of degradation and even systematized sexual exploitation and rape. And fair warning, I'm going to talk about this aspect, but even though I don't generally like content warnings, to be honest with you, I'm going to leave one. And when I do, I will let you know how far ahead to skip if you don't want to hear about that part of the story. Uh, so these towns were basically set up more or less like Pullman. The company owned everything from the land to the homes to the stores and everything else. So as an employee and as a citizen, in quotes at least, you worked in the mine, an extremely dangerous job, and the mine paid you. And this, go this obviously goes for the men, right? Because the, the men and the children were the only people who were actually worked in the mines. Then you bought all of your groceries from your employer, and you paid your rent to your employer. And both of these costs were far more costly than anywhere else in the state that wasn't a company town. But it was even somehow worse than all of that because not only did you have to pay those costs to your employer, but you also had to buy your tools and coveralls from the employer. To do your job, you had to front the money. Hell, miners even had to buy the explosive they used in the mines. So you know how you go to work and use a computer or a saw or a wheelbarrow or even just the pens and pencils? Yeah, it's like if you had to purchase those things yourself, except at a 30% markup from the company that you're working for. I guess, you know, I guess teachers probably feel that a little bit. And if we can add even more to this terrible system, when you got paid, the payroll goon would go through their checklist. Like it was a literal checklist. I think they call it a check card. And they'd say, 
okay, that's $5 for rent or something. Remember, this was a long time ago. I don't know what the actual cost would have been. They'd say you spent $3 on food, $2 on a new shovel handle, and 30 cents on fuel for your headlamp. And they'd take that money right out of your envelope. And then whatever was left in your envelope, you'd just end up paying back to the company in some way or another just to live. Because there was literally nowhere else to spend your money. Whatever you could buy was from the company. So they'd pay you, and then you would pay them at like a 20% markup for everything. So just take a moment to really grok onto this. And I won't even sensationalize this with language here. You work for an employer and get paid a wage, but you have to buy your own supplies. And the only place that you can buy those supplies is from your employer at massive markups. So you're literally paying them to work the job. Then you pay that employer rent. Then you are forced to buy groceries from your employer, again, at a huge markup. Even if you manage to actually walk away with some pay, it will eventually just go back to the employer because you just can't shop anywhere else. The company wins on every end of this thing, and the worker remains broke or in debt. This connection between the workers in the company towns and the pay system regardless of whether they used a check card or if they paid in you know, a more traditional sense at the time of sale and so on, it was even deeper than that. Because whenever these mines would give the workers a raise, and these raises were rare enough, trust me on that, they were also accompanied in lockstep with something else. The prices at the stores would go up and rent would go up. Raises were almost always, immediately and without hesitation, simply sucked back up by the company, leaving the workers no better off. Complete and total control and exploitation came with company towns as sure as taxes and death. There's even a fairly famous song about this situation of work, company towns, and debt. It's called 16 Tons. And I can't play it for you because of copyrights and stuff with YouTube, but these are the most famous lyrics that repeat a few times throughout. I, I guess it's probably the chorus, if I'm not being stupid. But yeah, this is a chorus. The 16 tons is in reference to loading coal in a coal mine, by the way. So the song goes, you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me? Because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. The control went even further in the coal towns with the Baldwin Feltz Agency thugs and Pinkerton thugs. Again, there were no town officials. It was just the violent agents of these two agencies who maintained order through beatings and with shootings. During the Ludlow Massacre in the company town of Ludlow in Colorado, Baldwin Feltz agents built a heavily armored car that they dubbed the Death Special, yeah, the Death Special, on which they mounted a machine gun and they patrolled the outskirts of the camp to keep miners in and to keep any undesirables, in the company's view anyway, out. These same agents would eventually just open fire on a camp of Ludlow strikers with their machine guns and kill several people. In West Virginia, 
During the Paint and Cabin Creek strike, the Baldwin Feltz agents actually utilized an armored train, which they named the Bull Moose Special, and they loaded that with a machine gun and rifles to attack a mining camp. This is the level of violence and control that we are talking about here. Another way that companies controlled their workers in these towns was via scrip, which I've mentioned a few times, and it's uh, spelled S-C-R-I-P, scrip. And scrip was a sort of money which the company printed, and it was only good to use as money within the company town. So in a modern sense, we might think about this as gift cards. Like if you worked at Amazon and they paid you with Amazon gift cards. It's kind of sort of money, but there's only one place you can spend it. Except in this case, this script was being used to pay extremely depressed wages to workers who were forced to spend that script in company stores with artificially inflated prices. This isn't a win-win for the company. It's a complete and total flawless victory for the company and a complete degradation of the worker. Now, you could theoretically exchange the script for regular dollars, but it was usually 60 to 70 cents to the dollar on the exchange rate, which was just a further loss for the workers. Script also caused debt, but it was a specific debt, a debt to the company itself, further control for the company. And when you're being paid such low wages in script in a company town, there was virtually no way to work yourself out of that debt. And to be honest with you, why would the company even allow you to work your way out of it? They have their check card when they pay you. They know how much money you need to dig out of that debt. They know the hours, the pay rate for various jobs. Why wouldn't they manipulate that to keep you indebted? And by the way, I want to add something here. Script was not universal. Most places paid in actual dollars. And people might be thinking, like, why didn't they just go to the incorporated town and buy stuff there? And the answer is because unlike a place like Pullman, where Chicago and maybe other towns are relatively nearby, there usually were not any towns, like literally at all, within walking distance of these mining towns. They were extremely isolated and had very strict curfews, which were enforced at gunpoint. And if you ever crossed the company, if you ever talked about unions, if you got upset at the work conditions, bye. You and your family have 15 minutes to pack your shit and get out of the company town. Oh, and there's a bunch of agents in an armored car with a machine gun on it sitting outside waiting to escort you. And so before we go to, you know, looking at a little bit more modern concepts of company towns, I want to hit on that very awful thing I mentioned before, the systematized rape in some of these company towns. So if you'd rather not hear about it, just skip ahead and there will be a short lead in up to it. So don't feel pressured to, you know, immediately tear, tear out your earbuds. Skip to 36 minutes and five seconds. Okay. So if you're still here, much of what we are going to be talking about here is cataloged in the book. Truth be told perspectives on the great West Virginia mine war, 1890 to present which was edited by Wes Harris and also from the work of Michael Klein. It revolves around a special form of script, which was referred to as Esau script. The term Esau has something to do with the Bible. When a dude named Esau was starving and he begged his brother Jacob for food 
and Jacob forced Esau to sign away his birthright for food. Now, I can't tell you who called this Esau script, whether it was, you know, called that by the company or the workers and wives, but it seems like it was most likely the workers and their wives. After all, once you accepted the script as a woman, you were effectively signing away your bodily sovereignty, much like the biblical Esau signed away his birthright. How Esau's script worked was this. If a miner was injured or got sick and couldn't work, the company would issue Esau's script to the wife or daughter of the miner, which was redeemable at company stores. Now, if the miner got back to work before 30 days, then all was forgiven. They kind of treated it as, you know, like, you know, family medical leave, I guess we do now. All of that debt was forgiven. But if the miner wasn't able to get back to work before 30 days, then all of that Esau script became a loan that had to be paid off, a prospect that would be near impossible to do for any miner. But even worse than that, just being in debt, with Esau's script, the women themselves actually became the collateral. Their bodies were how they had to pay off these loans, whether it was the wife or even a daughter. And they did. They were raped repeatedly for sometimes weeks and even months at a time until their debt was considered paid. And there still exists right now a three-story building that still bears the same name it had back in the 1920s and 1930s when this system was in place. It's called the Whipple Colliery Company Store. It's near um, Oak Hill, West Virginia. Back in the day, the women would go to the store and go to the third floor to try on shoes, and they would be raped by agents of the company. The third floor became known as the Rape Room. This is from an article on Counterpunch. Quote, Joy Lynn, who now co-owns the Whipple Company store and has turned it into a museum, told Klein that she has had as many as 10 women visit the museum who referred to the third floor space as the rape room, because that is how the mine guards forced women to pay for their shoes. They would have to keep their mouths shut tight about what had happened to them upstairs, Lynn said, because the mining companies would threaten to kick them out of their company-owned houses. End quote. Also from the article, quote, A woman from West Virginia told Harrison Klein a story about her great-grandmother who was rented to coal company agents at the age of 12. She would spend four to six months at a time in sexual servitude in coal camps. And if the girls had babies, the babies would be taken and sold, the woman said. End quote. Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't include this last bit to sensationalize the story. I included it to try to show the reality of how bad this sort of company town idea can get. It's really important that we understand our history so we can prevent it from repeating or even rhyming. If we allow some private concern, like a company, to own a town or even just control a town, they have far too much power over the people within that town and the balance point is extremely easy to shift towards abuse. In fact, I'd say it's basically impossible 
for abuse not to be the, I don't know, I, I guess just the entirety of existence in these towns. It's just control and abuse and exploitation. Okay, so we should be getting our listeners back around now, the people who wanted to skip ahead, and I totally get it. And I guess the the point of that last story is that we should never, ever allow corporations to so directly take control of civic life. And we should never let them hold such a high level of power over workers. Wages and work itself, housing, religious worship, how and where we can spend our money through methods like scrip or in a more modern sense, gift cards, even when we can leave our homes or our towns. So before we go, I want to take just a few minutes to hear to talk about modern attempts at something like company towns outside of what was talked about in the article we started with. And I have two of them. The first is a proposed development being run by Facebook. I want to call it Zuckberg because it sounds funny, but Facebook is going to call it Willow Village. The location for this proposed village is smack dab next to and between two of the poorest neighborhoods in California, and both of which are predominantly Hispanic. Facebook says that this will quote-unquote revitalize the area, which means it will displace all of those poor and Hispanic people. In other words, it will gentrify the area, which is not good news. They will build almost 2,000 apartments and a couple hundred will even be offered at below market rate. Not cheap, not affordable, but below market rate. Which begs the question on what the supposed market rate will be for brand new Facebook branded apartments being rented to engineers and executives making well into the six figures. Well, it's going to be pretty damn high. And below that market value will still be too expensive. And this market value will bleed across the surrounding streets as well. And even more low-income families and small businesses will be destroyed as this wealth blight spreads. However, in a, you know, a really great concession to locals, Facebook has even agreed to move the proposed grocery store closer to the road for supposedly easier access to their poor neighbors, along with all of the other high-end retailers and cafes which will inhabit Willow Village. So yay, the very poor neighborhood has access. And anytime we hear access used as a good, we should be very, very cynical. But they'd have access to likely a very expensive Whole Foods or some variation of that. Because you know it won't be an Aldi's, right? It won't be a discount grocer in that village. And who's going to complain when some family is trying to barbecue and have fun at the proposed park, but they're speaking Spanish and playing Spanish music? It won't be the locals, will it? It will be the six-figure dork on their electric monowheel with their double half-calf frap. But even beyond the gentrification nightmare and expensive shops, why would Facebook do this? It's control. They even offer employees a $10,000 bonus if they live within a certain distance of work. Remember how Pullman gave preference to those who lived in his town? 
It's the same thing. There's a town across the state from me called Lowell, Massachusetts. It was founded as a company town as well. And it was constantly torn apart by strikes and strike breakers made of private police. And the workers lived in relative misery as the companies resisted attempt after attempt to unionize to make a safer workplace or to raise wages. Lowell, in their, you know, their search for control, they even went so far as to manipulate the clock in the town clock tower to make workdays longer. We should be aware that Facebook and other Silicon Valley tech companies have remained steadfastly anti-union and would absolutely resort to anti-organizing practices like the company towns of old. Pullman, Lowell, and Gary, Indiana, another company town founded by U.S. Steel, which had violent clashes on their own with uh, company men and U.S. troops, they all had spies, men paid to keep an eye out for any malcontents or union organizers. If these companies were able to control entire towns, cities even, through the use of spies and threats of job loss and blackballing, what do we think Facebook and Google and Amazon can do? Facebook, Google, and Amazon are like some of the leading spy and intelligence gathering agencies of the world. You want to bet that every apartment comes with some sort of smart speaker or a Facebook portal device? Of course they will, and of course Facebook will use it to spy. Another version of a company town was proposed earlier this year in Nevada as Innovation Zones. Now, the bill was pulled by the governor, so I'm not going to go chew into it right now, but this bill would have gone even further by actually giving corporate owners of these zones the power and authority of a county government. Police, judges, you know, that sort of thing. Nothing big. It is absolute madness to even contemplate such a thing. And if this gains any more traction, you will definitely see an episode or video on it. But let's move beyond that stuff and talk about why we shouldn't be hoping for company towns while we wrap this episode up. I think that the primary thing we need to think about with these old and new company towns is that they are not there to create a better world despite the claims. They aren't being built to create safer neighborhoods, cleaner neighborhoods, or even neighborhoods that make any sense at all on any level whatsoever short of profit and control. These neighborhoods and towns are built to do just those last two things, to make a profit for those who build them and for those same corporate goons to control the people who live there inside of them. And in an even more modern context, these new company towns are being built to essentially strip mine the entire citizenry of data 24-7, 365, which was the actually the core principle behind a now abandoned proposal by Google to develop a large waterfront property in Toronto. You can Google Quayside, Q-U-A-Y-S-I-D-E, Toronto, Quayside, Toronto, to read a little bit about that project. And it was way more dystopian even than Willow Park that, you know, Facebook wants to build. These sorts of company towns are like wildlife traps. They lure you in with tasty bait by telling you these various lies like, hey, we have nice parks. Hey, we have apartments that are maybe cheap for what they are. 
We have free Wi-Fi or heat or bike storage or shuttle buses or whatever. And we'll give you $10,000 bonus to live here and so on. And once you're lured in, suddenly the trap snaps shut. The rent goes up. The Wi-Fi has a monthly charge now. Now you have to pay for heat and to use the bike storage and to use the shuttle buses. This is how they got people into towns like Pullman. Got them locked in with lures like a free library and a hotel with a bar in a town that doesn't allow booze. They lured them in with low rent too. And then the rent went up. The bar became a place for Pullman to spy on his employees. And the library suddenly required payment because it was too expensive. And now these employees were stuck. It's a classic bait and switch. So Willow Park has free Wi-Fi, but now they see you Googling the local tech workers union. And now you're in someone's office being talked to or fired. Or your Facebook portal is passively listening, and now you're evicted. And the city or state proper won't be helping you because the city and state are getting massive kickbacks in grift, and the company will have absolute control over their own town. The state will be subsumed by the company, and they absolutely will protect the property class over the workers, even high-paid tech workers. So none of this is new. None of this is shocking or surprising. We have a long history and legacy that company towns of the past have left behind. It is a history and legacy of corporations using their financial might and artificial control of their employees to debase democratic institutions and replace it with their own, like, quasi-governmental authority and even through private policing agencies. Sadly, a lot of Americans, and especially the libertarian dorks out there, really consider this to be a viable means to a utopia. Silicon Valley and the broader tech universe seems to believe that they can, in essence, be better feudal lords than what we had in the past through data mining and private oversight. We need to decide whether we want to enter into a new age of tech company feudalism and the destruction of any concept or hope of democratic accountability, or if we want the opposite of that. And the corporations in all of these instances, they will protect profit margins over your health, your safety, and your happiness. Every single time. Company towns harm workers. They do nothing to combat inequality. In fact, they only exacerbate inequality. And they definitely do not promote anything we can even remotely call freedom. Company towns are nothing less than base feudalism. They always have been, they are right now, and they always will be. And that, my friends, is the end of the episode. And I thank you for sticking around. And I apologize once again for the gap in um, new episodes. Um, I told you I'd tell you a little bit about what happened. And basically, I had a shoulder surgery. And I drastically and foolishly underestimated exactly how bad this would be. I really thought that after three or four days, I'd be able to do what I'm doing right now. And... It wasn't even close to that. It took me a good two weeks to even be able to think straight from the drugs and the pain, um, you know, being unable to move. It took like 10 days just to get my voice all the way back. 
So um, I was a fool, basically, and I didn't come up with a plan to, you know, release anything in the meantime. I really thought three, four, five days I'd be, you know, in pain. I wouldn't be able to use my arm, but I thought I'd definitely be able to, you know, do research and type notes and sit here and record, but I just could not. And uh, I was a moron, basically. And, uh, you know, I apologize for that. But if you're still here, I appreciate you. Um, if you like what you hear, please, you know, rate, review, Apple. There's a link in the description. Um, you know, go to the YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. Subscribe. That would be awesome. Um, everything's going up as a video as well. And I plan to hopefully do some streaming where, you, where you'll see my pretty face. I have um, everything I need here now that I kind of slowly put together, but hopefully that will happen soon. And, uh, you know, I guess that's it for now. Um, I love you all. Thank you.